Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today, my guest is Oliver T. Glog, who's an associate professor of French and Francophone studies in the Department of Languages and Literature at the University of North Carolina at Asheville. Dr. Glog received his doctorate at Duke in 2012 under the mentorship of Frederick Jameson. He also holds a law degree from Tulane and has been an undergraduate at Columbia. He has published articles on both Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus' relationships to colonialism and imperialism, and has a book under contract entitled Oublié Camus. Today we'll be talking about his Albert Camus, A Very Short Introduction, at with Oxford University Press in 2020. Oliver Glogue, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, before we get into the book um, and the life of Camus, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit of, about your life? How did you come to be a specialist in French intellectuals and especially in Camus and Sartre? Well, I guess I could start with the fact that I, was, that I grew up in France and I cut my teeth in Paris in the 1980s um, after Sartre's death. Did you grow up in Paris? I grew up in Paris. Mm-hmm. So my formative years, three to 23. And, uh, you know, I was in my teens in the 80s. That's really the the first revival of Camus. And when Sartre's reputation, you know, he died in 79 or 80, you know, really started to plummet. Um, so that was my environment. You know, Camus was in, was in the classroom. We, we read his books. We read Sartre, the plays. I was surrounded by, um, by these figures. And then, um, I mean, long story short, I ended up in the States and I ended up uh, in New York, in New Orleans, and then uh, in North Carolina because of Hurricane Katrina. And there I decided to pursue a PhD in French literature in, at Duke University. And that led me back into French literature. So um, why Albert Camus? I mean, you, you, yes, this was in the sort of cultural milieu of the 1980s in Paris. And, um, you know, he's, he's almost like this rock star uh, philosopher, writer in, in popular French culture. But what, for you, what's his place in, in French history and French culture and in, in world history, arguably? Well, you know, that's a... I think those are two questions. Like, why Camus? Camus, because, because when you study Camus and when you talk about Camus, you're really talking about French history. You're talking about French imperialism, French colonialism. You're talking about, you know, by extension, empires and colonial empires worldwide. You're talking about gender relations, uh, about the connections between literature and power. And so Camus is emblematic of, of, of these issues and so it's a way in to talk about history, to talk about cultural studies, uh, to talk about social class uh, because of Camus' itinerary. Um, and so all these reasons uh, make Camus immensely attractive uh, in terms of wanting to claim him, immensely attractive for academics, for publishers, for politicians. So that's, that's sort of the, the landscape today why people are interested in Camus. Now that's very different than to speak of his appeal 
you know, in the 40s and 50s when his works came out, when his work, his first works came out. Um, so, so that's, you know, that, that's part of the history. Um, but what Camus did in the 30s and 40s uh, was to question the mores of those societies, French society at that time, in a way that was completely new. Mm. So I, I, I tell you, I, I love the series, the uh, the very short introduction series, and and um, I love this whole genre. And maybe as a historian, I shouldn't say it, but I personally really don't like biography as a genre. Um, I don't know what it is. It's all my fault. But I, you know, I would personally have a difficult time sitting down to read five hundred pages uh, on the life of Albert Camus, or or Ho Chi Minh, or Churchill, or a few years ago, I tried to read the. Um, uh, one of the newer biographies of Franz Fanon, who's just so important for my work. And I couldn't read the biography. I don't know why, but the genre just doesn't click with me. Maybe it's too much minutia. Um, however, I plowed right through your very short introduction to his life. Um, it was, uh, it hit all the points I wanted to hit or I wanted to hit it. It engaged all the crucial issues, but I didn't, you know, have the, <laughs> you know, what he ate this day and so forth. There wasn't reading them um, that, uh, like that Norwegian novelist, uh, uh, autobiography, the, um, uh, what's his name? The, uh, the guy wrote my struggle with, um, so, so oh, yeah. some people, they, they really love that. But I, 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 I just so appreciate this because it just gets to the main issues. So what was, um, what were your sort of goals and guidelines as you were sort of developing this, this slim volume on Camus, who's admittedly a very vast character and, and there are very large books on, but what were, how did you structure your, uh, your approach to the book? Well, Mike, first I, I want to say, I really like what you have to say about biographies um, because it, it's, a, it's a perspective that, you know, the, the idea is sort of one look into his or her eyes and the course of the world, world history changed. And so there's, there's this sense that one person um, and one person's history is going to be um, meaningful and important. And in, in, in a sense, I think the good biographies are those who transcend that. And so they can be immense. But Caro's biographies on Lyndon Johnson, where he'll spend 200 pages writing another biography or talking about the political context of a particular situation, um, helps him transcend the genre. Um, and what I was trying to do was uh, to, on, on one level, to, I was going to say rescue, but to resituate Camus away from uh, all the commentators who've claimed him for a variety of reasons and to, to look and to introduce his, his, his writings, his major works, but also the historical context during which these works were elaborated, were written. I think that's, that's crucial to understand Camus. Um, and so a good biography should be a history book to contextualize you know, the context in which the text is written, because it's inseparable. In fact, you could think of novels, at least I think of novels and plays, as, as an encoding of the social and political realities of the time. And of course, I also wanted to give, you know, an, an, an opening, an overview of the Camus mania um, and that's going on today and the underpinnings behind it. What motivates them? Um, 
because people don't are not popular just out of the blue. So the idea was to contextualize Camus and to try to, to provide a counterpoint to people who lionize him or people who demonize him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not... And I, I thought that the the framing of the book uh, in the beginning and the end with the, the the sort of the afterlives of Camus was really really useful. Um, and I one of the things I was most happy about, and one of the reasons I really wanted to to talk with you about the book, is that you foreground the colonial context. Um, you know, both in his writing and in in your discussion of his life uh, as a specialist in the French colonial empire, I. I was professionally very happy to see that. Um, but on, it also hit me on a more personal note. I'm a, I'm a Haole from Hawaii, a white person from Hawaii, which is like, I guess, the, the American analog to being Pied Noir, perhaps. <laughs> um, although that's, I'm kind of going on thin ice there. Um, and I, I recall reading The Stranger um, at age 17 in Hawaii. Um, in my memory, I read it on the hot sands of Waikiki Beach. Um, didn't shoot anybody, um, but it, it reading it in that post-colonial, arguably colonial setting, I think it kind of hit me in, on a deeper level than most sort of alienated teenagers who pick up The Stranger and, and read it um, in other parts of the world. Yet when I got into college um, and it, even in graduate school at UC Santa Cruz of all places, I had so many professors in French classes who insisted that the Algerian setting was incidental to Camus' real message. And I clearly remember a discussion in a French class of the short story, The Host, which you talk about in, the, uh, in this book. And I was completely dumbfounded by the professor's insistence that, uh, that the colonial context was marginal because it seemed so central to me. Um, and, you know I, I've, I know, I haven't read a ton of the literature and I know that it's better now in terms of um, situating Camus in the Colonial encounter. There's Jim Lesur has a great book, uh, Uncivil War, about French intellectuals and their response to the so-called Algerian question. But did you find that the the writing on Camus needed a corrective to properly situate him in the colonial encounter? Well, um, well, overall, I, I I do think that most of the commentary on Camus, certainly in France, is tries to to ignore. Um, the, the fact that Camus is a, a French writer born in Algeria, that he is a settler and he's writing from that standpoint. Um, in fact, it goes beyond that. Some certain commentators actually call Camus Algerian. Now that's, you know, it's very different. If you're Algerian and you call Camus, you're claiming him, but if you're a, a European or Anglo academic calling Camus Algerian, that's a continuation of the colonial project. I mean, I prefer the term neocolonial than postcolonial because postcolonial gives us the impression that it's all over. Neocolonial is, is, neocolonialism is a subset of, of imperialism. Colonialism is another, uh, um, another expression of it, of another political expression of it. And hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. I wanted to go back on your identification as a, as a pied noir, because I think that's very interesting because you know, you're saying you're an American Pinwell because you're, you're a U.S. citizen in Hawaii. And, you know, there were a lot of Pinwell, or, you know, not the majority, of course, who were, in fact, the first, one of them was the first writer who criticized Camus' perspective in The Stranger and in the play for being pro-colonialist. His name was Henri Créat. And there were 
you know, heroes of Algerian independence who were white settlers. Uh, Fernand Yveton, uh, Jean Sénac, who was a very close friend of Camus and who broke at him on the issue. Um, so so it's, it's, it's interesting because we can sort of transcend our, our, you know, our birth and, and choose the right side, as it were. Um, as far as, so, you know, Henri Créa wrote in, in 61, a critical, short critical page on The Stranger. And then the people who wrote critically on Camus were few and far between. I mean, things have changed now, but I think it started, as far as I know, with Connor Cruz O'Brien. Um, in 1970, he wrote a short piece on, on Camus and The Stranger, and it was pretty, pretty powerful. And then, of course, there's the famous um, uh, chapters um, in, in, in Edward Said's Orientalism and Culture and Imperialism, and so where he speaks directly of The Stranger. And after that, you know, there were, there, were, there were more critical perspectives, but very few in France, mm. very few in France. And if you- More, more of a North American, um, Anglo-American phenomenon. Right, and that's partially due to the privatization of education in those countries. In France, the, the main employer for faculty is the French state, and you don't touch Camus. And if you do, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to get promoted, as it were. It's certainly a career ender. Um, so, so there are different perspectives, um, clearly. I think now, and you're not going to get published by the big names in France um, if you're going to have a critical perspective on Camus. And, and it's the, the same is by and large true in, in, in the States. There are a lot of books out today, biographies of Camus, uh, you know, that are very popular and they're very much hagiographies. They're very, you know, they're very, they polish the, the, the statue as it were. And that's what you find for the most part when you pick up a book on Camus, even to this day. And if you don't write that, you expose yourself to, you know, to, to a certain amount of vitriol, um, clearly. I, I get about a letter a week uh, from, um, <laughs> from, from boomers who, who have tattoos of Camus on their forearms, professors, <laughs> retired professors who tell me off for, for uh, writing about Camus. They'll, they'll say, don't touch Camus. Uh, and uh, I feel like I've, I've upset a few, a few people. <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. I, um, you know, I was the, the, in the cohort of um, uh, American graduate students who did French colonial history in the 1990s and, and adopted a very critical approach and, so many of us were told not to go into the field because it was a backwater. Nobody did French colonial history. It was just nostalgia or military history or so forth. Um, and we, you know, we, Eric Jennings and David Del Testa and a whole variety of us, um, you know, brought, brought it up, up to speed into a, a, a full subfield of French history um, and faced a fair amount of pushback for writing critically about the French empire. And I used to get hate mail from um, from French readers who talk about, you know, you, you as an American can't criticize the French empire as being a racist project. You know, you've got no moral standing and and it wasn't a racist project. So it's um, I, I, I definitely understand that, uh, um, that, you know, that frustration. And, and I think that some of some of the North Americans are the the staunchest Franco uh, Franco files out there and very defensive of critical absolutely. Of France and so, absolutely yeah. yeah 
So tell us about um, young Albert. Um, where where in Algeria did Camus grow up, and what was his early life like? And and you know what what aspects of this early life were important for his uh, career trajectory? Well, I think that the, the crucial thing to know is that Camus came from a modest background. His father his his father was sort of a overseer. He was to oversee uh, a winery. And um, he, and that's interesting too. Just you know, as as a you know as a note to, to foreground it historically, wine growing in Algeria. What what's that about? Well, what's what this is about is that in the 1830s and 40s, uh, when France was going about conquering Algeria, they couldn't do it. They were decisively beaten by Abdelkader, who was a emir who who beat the French army on you know for. For eight years, and so they decided to to destroy the the crops, the the crops that the Algerians grew and lived on, and they uprooted olive trees and substituted them with vines, and so that's the quintessential sort of uh, colonial agriculture, and that's what Camus' father was involved in, and and they're doing it in a Muslim land, right? Exactly, so to speak. Yes, they're doing it in a Muslim land. And, you know, even after the independence, I mean, Algeria was one of the main producers of wine uh, that, that, that eventually became less, less, um, less important. And, but, you know, they were there and they were providing the strong wine that, you know, uh, that was given to soldiers during World War One. It was mixed in with French wine. I mean, it was, you know, it was that the riches, that rich soil was to the benefit and was cultivated for the benefit of French people and uh, obviously uh, French owners and so on. So the small part of that is Camus' father, but then he, 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 so he's overseeing or he is to oversee a winery and he dies quickly. He dies um, in, in a year after Camus uh, is born, 1914. And that changes things for Camus' family socially because all of a sudden the mother who, who is sort of, who's deaf and who can't speak properly uh, ends up having to be um, a, a cleaning lady, and they live with um, with Camus' mother's mother, who is very harsh, um, and used to beat Camus. And they live in a tiny little place in Belcourt, which is a neighborhood in Algiers. And it's you know he shares a bed with his brother. There's an outhouse. They're poor, um, and. Uh, that's the you know the, the the setting the social setting for Camus. But there was an interesting um, an interesting comment by Camus himself in the fifties. So many years later, he's doing a, a sort of mini autobiography for for a friend, and he says, you know, I grew up poor, but not as poor as the Arabs. So there was there was always this self con- this, this this consciousness of the uh, white whiteness and, theory right there. I mean, this is. You know yeah. how the Irish became white. I mean, this is this is colonial whiteness, right? Yeah, absolutely. But an awareness of it in Camus, which I think is very interesting, because it comes out sometimes because he he at once is aware of it and at the same time does not really want to talk about it directly, and, and eventually is forced to um, by historical events. But so to go back to his youth. Um, he is, when his father dies, he becomes a pupille de la nation, a ward of the state, which means that he gets not only public education, but a certain amount of money and free medical care throughout his life. 
and money for, for education. And so does his mother, just a small pension, but still something. And that helps him because he then becomes um, you know, an adoptive son of the French state. Right. And, you know, in, just to fast forward, I mean, uh, later in his life and his career, his, his working class identity is in sharp contrast to the other writers and philosophers that he's uh, rubbing elbows with. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's key in understanding Camus and understanding his enduring appeal. I mean, after all the stranger it's, 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 it's a novel of an office worker and not your typical office worker who wants to climb their way to the top, but the office worker who is checked out, who Mm -hmm. doesn't care. So this is not a novel of social climbing. Um, And in that, that figure of the sort of disabused office worker, that's very new. That's sort of electrifying when it mm. comes in, in, in the 40s. And, and everyone can relate to that unless you have the, you know, the dream job. That will be a, a powerful influence on the French novel. I mean, the novels of Welbeck, you know, that everyone reads today. That's what I was thinking of when you said that. You know, the yeah, every single character worker. is sort of a depressed you know, professional who is who's lost all ambition, their starting point is is Merceau in The Stranger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just circling back to uh, earlier in his life, um, so what, what obstacles did he face in his education and his professional trajectory? Well, first, you know, the no cultural capital. You know, his, his mother doesn't doesn't read, doesn't doesn't talk. Uh, the grandmother wants him to to quit school and to um, to work in a, he's made to work in a grocery store in the, in the summer. So he doesn't have vacations. And once he, it's the, the, the school system is a little strange in France, but once you get to be 13 and there's the, you go to um, you go to the college and the grandmother doesn't want him to do that. And so his, his teacher uh, at the time, Louis Germain goes to his home and talks with his grandmother and says, listen, this kid is bright. You've got to let him uh, continue on because, and, you know, with arguments that like you'll make more money and so on and so forth. And so reluctantly, the grandmother allows him. So the obstacle is his own family. They, they need the money right away. They want him to get a regular job, not pursue his studies and go to the lycée and then get his baccalaureate. Um, so, so the weight of, of the, the social expectations of his class, I mean, go get a job right now. That, that was, you know, one of the major impediments. Um, and, and that will, you know, the, that upbringing uh, will, will play a great part in Camus' insecurities, Camus' character. Um, he hasn't had the, the, the cultural capital, the, self, the bourgeois self-confidence, you know, that from Flaubert all the way to Sartre, all the, the, the people who wrote before Camus have had, and Camus never had that. That that's an, another major difference, right? And didn't um, I mean he, he succeeded in education, did very very well, um, but then he had a health crisis that that resulted in a professional blockage for him, correct? Yeah, and so that's that's also that's TB. That's so so his I think he was in his early twenties or late teens, where one after playing soccer in December he starts coughing up blood, and and that's. You know, that's a, an important moment for him in his life because, of course, 
this is the awareness that life is short, is finite. And he gets, he gets that experience, that awareness much earlier than most of us. And that changes his perspective. But what it means is that he, because he has TB, uh, the French state allows him to pursue his studies. You know, he gets, uh, he, he, he gets, he gets to go to university. He writes a thesis. But when he applies to become a professor, they reject him because his life expectancy is short statistically because of TB and the French state doesn't want to waste resources. So he, he had the, the intellectual capacity to succeed. He was doing everything right, but they, they sort of engaged in sort of a, a necropolitical logic, uh, what, yeah. what Sarah Palin would have called a death panel kind of situation said that because you're, you've had TB, you, you cannot get this professional appointment. Yeah, and it's not really, uh, yeah, it's a death panel in the sense it's career death, although obviously uh, Camus surmounted it. Uh, you know, it happened to Roland Barthes as well, oh, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for Camus at the time, that was a major shock. Yeah. And I think that you can make a connection between Meursault's indifference. There's a passage in The Stranger, he says, well, I used to have those dreams of success when I was a student, but no longer. And I think that when Camus finds out that all his career plans are completely out, out the door, and, and then what does he do? That, that must have been a massive shock for him. Right. And, and fairly young in his life, he joins the Communist Party in Algeria, but then it's, it's a really ambiguous membership and, and he'll leave the party fairly quickly. So what, why did he join and, and, and then why did he leave? And, and what, what age was this? So this is, this is um, in his 20s. In 1935, he joins. N Nobody quite knows exactly why. Certainly not because he was a communist. So he had a mentor, Jean Grenier, who was his, the last year of high school, his philosophy professor, and then his professor um, during university years. And Jean Grenier was, was a free thinker, a philosopher, someone who rubbed shoulders with Malraux, who was published by the Nouvelle Revue Française. So someone who was extremely prestigious, who was a, a mentor for Camus. And he tells Camus, join the Communist Party. And I think part of it is the fact that the Communist Party back in, in the 30s was the place to be for aspiring intellectuals. This is, this, this is clearly the case. Everyone was in it. Uh, with, with perhaps Gide, who had just left, but overall it had immense prestige. Another reason, I think, this fits with Camus' desire to defend colonialism and try to resolve the contradiction between the Enlightenment values of France and the colonial practices of the French Empire. And he was an early supporter of a bill that would have given Algerians um, 5,000 Algerians out of millions, um, some civil rights and the right to vote. And that was a very sort of minor uh, compromise, but even that was rejected out of hand. But the notion... By, by, the, by the French state, by the Pianor by, community, by... By the Pianor community. Okay, and so absolutely no concessions is the sort of the political environment that he's living in, and he, and, but he's favoring this. But he is favoring this, and the Pianois mayors, the Pianois local elected officials refuse it out of hand. And his argument is, listen, if you don't give a little, you're going to lose everything, which, you know, turns out was prophetic. 
but he he joins the Communist Party, I believe, for the same reasons. What he wants is um, people like Misali Hajj, who are some of the founding fathers of Algerian nationalism. He wants them to remain in the Communist Party. He doesn't want them to break off and create their own party. And so the way that this is couched in, if, um, in most scholarship on Camus is, uh, there's a this sort of key sentence. He joined the Communist Party to work with Arabs. But what, what does that mean? Um, I believe it means work with them to make them stay in the Communist Party because the Communist Party at that time underwent uh, a massive change. This is not the Leninist Party that said, all right, all countries have to be independent. And it had a strong anti-colonial spent. This is this is a new communist party, which says, let's change things from within the empire. And that's a massive change. And they, they, they change their political outlook. 36 is the popular front when they make an alliance with the social Democrats and the centrists. This is, this is more Stalin than Lenin. And Camus is part of that move to try and co-opt the Algerian, the incipient Algerian pro-independence movement and to keep them within a Franco-French uh, framework. And in 1937, when the cut, when Miss Ali Hajj decides this is not going to work, and he demonstrates with the Communist Party, but with a flag, with an Algerian flag, and breaks away from them symbolically, there's no more reason to be in there for Camus, and he leaves. Now, some scholars say he was excluded, some say he wasn't, that he left out of his own accord. Um, you know, it, it's not clear. There are entire books written on this issue. But what is clear is that he leaves at a time where he leaves when all the Arab groups leave and Hajj founds the North African star. Mm-hmm. So I think that that connection uh, leads, at least it leads me to infer that um, there can be no pro-colonial a reason to stay in the Communist Party at that stage. And so I think that corresponds to him leaving. Mm. So, so he leaves the party. His um, goal to be uh, uh, an educator is checked. So he becomes a journalist. And um, tell us about his work as a journalist. And, uh, you know, for example, his reporting on Kabilia. And uh, what, what was he writing in the mid to late 30s? So the reason he becomes a journalist, in fact is because he got rejected by the French educational system because of TB. He doesn't know what to do. He works as a meteorologist for a while. Um, he's, he's bored. So did Sartre actually uh, a little bit. a meteorologist? Yeah, well, in a, a, the, the weather forecasting yeah. office. So uh, analyzing statistics and so on. And, uh, <clears throat> and so he, but he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't really want to be a journalist, but he accepts it because there's nothing else at this stage. And the idea is he's going to, to work as a journalist and, um, and write on the side because he has this sort of you know, ambitious literary project, well, many projects. So he starts working, he, he is, he's brought in by Pascal Pia, who is a, a, a French a metropolitan French um, social Democrat journalist. And at first he's a reporter and he spends a lot of his time in the courthouse. Um, watching trials. And of course, that also helps us um, 
and makes us look at the second part of the stranger differently because it happens in a courthouse. So a lot of the, the, the notes, the observations, the portrait of bourgeois society, of bourgeois colonial society, and these are, this is his experience as a journalist that, that you know, bears fruit. Now, the, his reportage in Kabylia are fascinating because they are exhibit A for those who want to stage Camus as an anti-colonial writer. Um, and so he goes to Kabylia, he writes a series of articles. And the point is that he is trying to move Pienois public opinion to give more funds to the Kabyle. Uh, and the Kabyle are uh, a people who live in the mountainous region of Algeria, who have been some of the strongest resistors to the French em- empire. Um, the ones who resisted and who were the last to fall against the French army. I would say the proportionally uh, they were disproportionately represented at, in the members of the, the, the FLN in terms of the resistance to the French empire. So they were, in a sense, the, the, the poverty in Kabylia was a punishment by the French state. And Camus goes there and looks at the misery and makes a humanitarian appeal. He has all these statistics about the lack of water, the lack of food, and so on and so forth. And he is saying, we, we must be moved by this. And we must be moved because we must understand that these people must be treated well. Um, and that is the fate and the moral integrity of the empire that is at stake. So, so there is um, the humanitarian perspective is a means to an end. And that end is for Algeria, for the Algerian people and for the Kabyle to remain under French sovereignty. Um, so, so what happens is that his humanitarian concern for the Kabyle has been, in a, critic, in a criticism of the colonial administration, has been conflated with anti-colonialism. And that literally is a doxa in French academic circles and in some American circles too. Uh, but the, the, the fact of the matter is that Camus was not an anti-colonialist. He was a subtle defender of the colonial system. Uh, he just wasn't a rabid uh, anti-colonialist Pinoir, mayor, uh, he was he was much so- smarter and much more subtle. Yeah, interesting contrast there. I mean, it's, I mean, j- just being that that nuanced and more subtle would really make him stand out from the rest of sort of Pinoir politics. Sure did, and, yeah. it, and, and it was not without consequences, uh, because of course that project completely failed, mm-hmm. in the sense that what it did was it attracted the opprobrium, the the anger of the Pinoir authorities, and the paper for which he wrote these articles were, was eventually shuttered by the French government. Now, for the most part, um, it was closed down because of Camus' stance with respect to World War II. Uh, at the beginning, he was, you know, he, didn't, he was against the war, but certainly his reportage in Kabylia played a part. Mm-hmm. And and in this time period, the late thirties, he also opposes the coming war with Germany. What's his what's his thinking there? Well, so so I think that um, well, first off, that position, the position of being against the war, um, was not at all uncommon, and certainly not uncommon when it came to people who were concerned about social class. Um, I think one point. Maupassant 
who was 19th century short story writer in, in, in France and who had a lot to say about colonialism, met with Jules Vallès, who was an anarchist who participated in the commune. And he recounted a conversation where Jules Vallès said to him, uh, I'm not against war. Uh, I'm against most wars, but I'm not against but the war I'm in favor of is a social war. And so that was the idea, is that you didn't want to go fight a war for a pro-capitalist government. You were fine fighting a social war for you know, more social rights, for revolution. And Camus was firmly on that side. And also, this is you know, the consequence of the absolute massacre of World War I. So Camus lost his father. But I mean, the whole generation, if you look at demographics, if you, even sort of in terms of the population of, of local villages in, in, in you know, very rural areas in France today, some of them haven't climbed back to their pre-World War I levels. Um, this is true to this day. So this is one in a, a, out of every three men in age of serving who disappeared. Uh, so, so that was a very popular position. Uh, Camus had all sorts of justification and they would get censored for, for writing about this. And so he made all sorts of appeals. He was very happy about the Munich Accord. Um, but you know, that, that was, I think it was an understandable position at the time. Uh, we, we look back at it with, with hindsight. Uh, but he just didn't want another another massacre, right? But then, then once the war begins and we see the true face of Nazism and the the Nazi occupation of France, um, he he eventually joins the resistance, but not for a while. Um, uh, why does he wait to join the resistance, and then when does he? And, and what did he do? Um, um, he was he worked with uh, Combat, um, the resistance publication. What, what was What's his relationship with the resistance? Well, I think it's, it's, it's complicated. And part of the reasons it's complicated is because it's been so casually and consistently misrepresented that now stating the facts somehow seems controversial and, uh, you know, it's sort of frowned upon. So you look at biographies of Camus, you look at, um, the little chronologies in his in, in early editions of his complete works or of his works in France, and they'll all say that he joined the resistance in 42. Um, the, the reality is that Camus, um, uh, during the war, so when the war starts and he, he's in Paris, he's working as a journalist, he moves to Lyon, his newspaper was, was closed, he eventually loses that job, goes back to Oran um, to live with his wife, and his wife's family, and moves back to France in 42 because of TB. So they thought that uh, when he had tuberculosis, he had to live in the mountains, in the cold, um, and you had to eat a lot of meat. So he does that, He's, and in that area, he, some of his friends and acquaintances are in the resistance, and he's not part of it. Now, this may also fit in with his notion of the absurd, that there is no moral high ground, that there is absolutely you know, no overarching meaning in life. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but Camus eventually joins the resistance, probably, it's not completely clear if it's the end of 43 or early 44. And how does he join it? Well, there's a publication, Combat, that's been going on since the very early days of the occupation, I'd say 41. And at the time, Combat was a newspaper that was pro-Pétain. 
It had, you know, it had Pétain on its masthead. Um, it eventually changed, but they thought that he was working against the, the, the Nazis despite it all, despite all appearances. And what does he do? Well, he writes these letters to a German friend. And those letters to a German friend are, you know, it's a, it's a monologue. It's really uh, Camus speaking to, to, to this person. And it's about why did France, why did France took such, take such a long time to resist? And that France didn't want to join history. That France wanted to fight wars, but for social reasons, not national reasons. And in a, in a way, you can, the way I see these letters is also these letters are about Camus himself. Why did he take such a long time? Because if you look back, you, you, you rewind a little bit. 1942, I believe, is when The Stranger comes out and The Myth of Sisyphus at the same time. It comes out at the same time. And there's a passage in The Myth of Sisyphus, a chapter on Kafka. And that's, that wasn't going to make, uh, you know, the, the Nazi censors, obviously, since Kafka is, is Jewish. So Camus voluntarily removes it and puts a chapter on Dostoevsky instead. So, you know, and, and all intellectuals had to make compromises. Um, he republishes that chapter on Kafka in, 40, in 44, uh, maybe late 43. And his involvement is writing those letters and then helping with the day-to-day um, crafting of the paper. Because after all, he had experience in Algiers with Agir Républicain. And, and so, so he applies that to combat. And as the war uh, winds to an end, he gets much more implicated. He may have written a couple of editorials, unsigned editorials uh, as well, uh, but most of the editorials he writes, uh, signed or unsigned or after the liberation, he also had a play that was um, that, that was one of the last plays to be represented uh, during um, the occupation. So he had a you know it wasn't he wasn't an early resistor, um, but he he did join the resistance. But it was contrary to sort of popular belief. It was very late, um, and he didn't want to make a, a song and dance about it. Contrary to again um, the French state and by and large you know the French educational system that that tried to sort of magnify his role. And that was a, a constant for, for the powers that be. Uh, authors were either devils that had to be punished, uh, and some were, were killed. Basiak. Um, yeah, Basiak, exactly. And, and others were lionized when, when they didn't really uh, deserve it. Um, but that was, that was sort of a policy uh, of, of the French state. And so Camus was sort of caught in that, I think. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into the absurd. And you devote a whole chapter to Camus' concept of the absurd. And in that chapter, you discuss the play Caligula, which I admittedly have not read, um, the novel The Stranger, uh, the myth of Sisyphus, which I, I always think is probably the best piece of writing for any faculty member going into administrative responsibilities. You know, we're as we sit in committee meetings, we have to imagine Sisyphus is happy pushing the the stone up the uh, the hill. Um, what what is the absurd, and how do these these various works illustrate it? Uh, dramatic form, the novel, and then um, the essays of the myth myth of Sisyphus. Well, so the absurd is is a feeling, and what Camus does in the myth of Sisyphus and in the stranger is describe this feeling. It's not a theory. You know, people talk about absurdism. I I, I don't really know what that is. Um, I like that more of a feeling than a theory. Yeah. Yeah. 
And he says it. There's an interview of him. You can find it on a on a CD. It's, maybe it's on YouTube. Where he, he just he just comes out and says it. And the feeling and what what's the feeling? I think in the myth of Sisyphus, he describes it. I mean, there there, there are various examples he gives. But he's in a in a cafe. He's walking around in the cafe and he sees you know beyond the cafe itself. There's a there's a glass window and there's a a, a character speaking with a lot of animation into a phone. Um, and all of a sudden he gets this feeling of where am I? What am I doing? What was this person talking to this chunk of plastic? And it's this sort of out of body experience. Um, that's for Camus, the feeling of the absurd. Um, I think also probably, you know, his experience when he started getting TB, you know, he got TB, he started coughing blood, um, working, you know, like mad for, to get the equivalent of, of, you know, for us, a PhD and then realizing, well, this is worthless. Well, I guess, you know, maybe that's true for, for all of us today, but um, there are moments uh, where, and, and for him, it was also his first marriage that came to naught. Um, there, there are moments where suddenly the script that society wants us to live by seems utterly meaningless. Um, and, and that's the, so the absurds are two things. It's, it's the realization of, of the fact that there is no meaning in, in life. And he, he, goes, he, he goes beyond that, right? He, he really believes that um, there's no intellectual system capable of making sense of it. Now, now, of course, by saying that, he's making sense of it in, in a way. And the second absurd is the conscious decision to, to face that absurd world, to live an absurd life. Now, to live an absurd life is, for Camus, he says it that way, which means to, to be aware of the absurdity of life and to live it, uh, to live it in, 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 with this awareness. And then the myth of Sisyphus is a series of examples of people who can live an absurd life, um, artists, uh, actors, warriors, and so the actors live different lives. You know, they, they, one day they're Julius Caesar, the next day they're, you know, a cleaning person and so on. And they have these different existence and, and then they're finished and they start a new one. So for him, that's, that's really, uh, a, that profession is going to give the actor uh, a greater awareness of the absurdity of existence. Um, a Don Juan as well. So, it, this it just had this moment of flash here. Um, it's it's almost like the Bhagavad Gita, where um, uh, Arjuna can't go to war, and uh, his charioteer is Krishna, and turns around and reveals himself to be an avatar of um, the god, and and explains you know the concept of dharma, and that he has to that it, that yes, this battle is absurd. You are going to kill your former teachers and some family members, but this is your duty. Is is that what it is? Like to find duty or, or simply pleasure or meaning in going about one's life. But, but with the absurd, there is no meaning. There is no meaning. So, um, so it's not about like, it's, it's not about finding a meaning. It's about, it's about being happy in a world without meaning. And there are going to be some crucial problems. And that's why the absurd will eventually, you'll sort of leave it behind in a sense and move on to, to revolt. Um, and, and so it's about accepting that meaninglessness and the fact that there's no moral. So he has this whole chapter on the Don Juan. Uh, the actors also are more accepting of the, 
the finitude, the, the fact that a life will end. <clears throat> he, he, you know, the, the, the way he sort of, ex, he does, he explains it and he illustrates it in Caligula is Caligula is aware of the absurdity of life and he decided, decides to teach it to his citizens uh, by force, by killing them on a whim or not, or making them rich. Um, and, and, and that is provoked by the death of his lover, who's also his sister. And, and all of a sudden, when, when that happens, he has this great moment of grief. And, and then all of a sudden, because of the grief, there is no more meaning. And he tries, so the entire play is really sort of violently uh, forcing contingency on people, uh, events that are unplanned, unexpected, and people try to make sense of it and they can't. Well, so this, we're, yeah, we're, we're talking at the end of 2020. So <laughs> the, the elephant in the room in this discussion is going to be the plague, right? Um, I mean, the sales in the novel shot up this year. Um, uh, what was Camus trying to do with the plague? Um, what, what year does it come out? Does it come out 47, 48? Came out, I think, in 47. 47. So what, what is he trying to do in the plague? And, and how is he using the disease as a metaphor? So he's... The novel starts with a quote by Daniel Defoe. Now, some English editions have it, some don't, uh, where he says, you know, uh, you can use a disease as an allegorical, you know, as a, as a, as a, allegorically, and it could be a stand-in for something else. Yeah. You know? And so it's sort of a key. And the way the novel has been read by, you know, most commentators, that's an allegory for um, the German occupation of France. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, it's, it's this presence against whom everyone has to unify and some don't, some collaborate. So those are the people who respect the plague, to the plague who profit from um, the plague itself. You know, this is a whole black market going on in the plague, just the way there was a black market during the occupation. And so, so that's the, the standard reading as it were. Um, at the time, clearly. Now that's morphed, of course, uh, today to see it as you know a, a, a struggle against adversity. I think for Camus, it's also this notion that it forced all these characters to live every day of their lives as though it were their last. Uh, that's a sort of very existential perspective. Uh, you now have to live your life to the fullest because you know you're forced to know. This is sort of like an, an experiment, like a lab experiment. How do you make people aware that their life is, uh, could end at any time? And this is interesting because today with COVID, that's one of the great uh, people in, in absolute denial of this. They don't want to wear masks. They don't want the, the, the very notion of the possibility of, of this being real is something they want to negate, right? Um, so Camus injects the plague in this in the everyday life of this of this city Oran to to basically say this is this is in fact the way you should be living your life regardless, you know? and and things would change from 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 that perspective. So that's um, that's the way. So the, the 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 comparison with Germany is is and the German invasion is the way it's been read. Now that's very problematic, of course, because um, you know this is conflating a virus with a people, uh, with a historical event. 
So, so that's, you know, um, that's a very, very problematic reading of the plague, but that's the standard one. And I think something that Camus, um, you know, had in mind when he wrote it, this movie of, this is a, a, the novel of the French resistance. You, that he had that in mind. I think so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, but, but it, I mean, <laughs> irony of all ironies, it's set in Algeria where there is an Algerian resistance to the French presence. How, how important are the, the, how important is the colonial context for the stranger and for the plague? Well, for the plague, I think it's very interesting because he tries to set it aside and, you know, when you started talking about your experiences as a student and a graduate student reading Camus, and your professors would say, well, the colonial context is incidental, Camus very much wanted people to think that. Now, what we're here, what we're doing is we're trying to look at, at things, not from a political perspective, but we're trying to look at an ideological contradiction that powers Camus' works but is disguised. And so we, we got to do a little digging here. But when we look at the plague, he starts out by saying, well, it's just a regular town, you know, in, you know, in Oran. And, but it's not a regular town. It's a colonial town. But Absolutely. he should have, he absorbed the, the, the political reality that at that time, you know, Algeria was a département, just the way Hawaii is a state of the union. Um, and then he tries to evacuate the Arab question because he's very much aware of it. And so one of the main characters, a journalist, he, he goes to inquire. He's coming, he's in a home because he's inquiring about the living conditions of the Arabs. And he has an interaction with the Dr. Rieu who basically says, well, you know, if things are not right about these conditions, I may not tell you about them. But, but, but that little chapter, it's not a chapter, it's a paragraph is evacuated and never talk about it again. Um, and so, so there's this desire to set them aside completely. They're never mentioned. I mean, this is in, in some sense um, a regression because from, from the stranger, because there's not a single Arab character, not, not a single one that even speaks. I think at one point there in the black neighborhood, Le Quartier Negre um, is how Emmy writes about it, but it's, it's empty. There, there, are no, there are no Arabs there. Um, and so there's a complete evacuation uh, of, of Arabs from that city. So one way to look at the plague, another sort of attempt at interpreting this mysterious plague is to say that the plague is in fact, is in fact the, the fear of Algerian resistance to colonialism. It is in fact all these events, like all the outbreaks of the plague throughout the centuries are those moments of resistance. Abdelkader in the 30s and the early 40s, the Kabylie in the 70s, the insurrections, um, all sorts of, of episodes that can be seen by the settler colonialists as in fact bouts of malaria, bouts of the plague, and they know that ultimately they will die from it. And that is, in fact, historically what happens. And if you look at the end of the novel, what's fascinating is that there's this passage where the people are demonstrating they're happy because the plague 
has been has been seemingly defeated. And Camus writes, well, you know, it's there, it's lying about. Rieu, Dr. Rieu, the narrator, writes that it's there and it's ready to uh, wake back up again and finally take everyone over. So I think that uh, at a certain level, the, the play can be seen as the fear of, you know, sort of that album by Public Enemy, Fear of a Black Planet. <laughs> the, the fear of Arabs rising up and reclaiming their territory. And that corresponds, of course, to also the existentialist realization that life is finite. Well, so are empires and they are meant to die. And why would this be so present in young Camus' mind? Well, first off, because he's a product of the French educational system. And so when you grow up in France, in the French Republic, the, the French secular system, which is, which is sort of a religion, um, you are told about the notion of progress and the notion of, of a move towards the revolution, the French Revolution. And so we, we have the, this French people who are by and large all peasants who move towards this great liberation against the monarchy. And that's the destiny of humanity, liberation from oppression. Now, how could you not um, transpose that when you're a young settler, aware that the Arabs are poorer than you are, as Camus said later on in the 50s in this little interview with a friend, that they will rise up and they will be the peasants and you will be the aristocrats. Because, of course, the proportions are roughly similar. Well, they're not, but it's still, you know, for for 90%, 95% of the people living in Algeria are oppressed Algerians, and then 5 to 10% are settlers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, one of the things I've studied in my work on colonial Vietnam and seeing the documents of debates amongst administrators about, you know, we, we what are we doing building schools in Vietnam and giving them a French education? We're going to have them read Rousseau and Voltaire. You know, we, we, all we're doing is creating rebels. <laughs> we, can't, we can't teach them about the French Revolution. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, At the um, time, of course, there were very few Arabs in the French school system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell us about The Rebel, uh, published 1951. What's his argument here? And what's, what's the critical response? Because I think that's even more interesting. Well, the argument uh, sort of quickly is, well, first off, you know, the absurd is pretty nihilistic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's no overarching system or moral value. And World War II really sort of makes a dent in it. How can you be truly faithful to the absurd during the German occupation? Well, he was until the end of 43. And that's when, you know, for moral reasons, ultimately, um, he joins the resistance. So the absurd does not hold. And it's interesting because the drafting of Caligula he changes the play. And there's this right, character, right. who advocates for resistance against Caligula, who takes gradually more and more importance in the text in the later iterations, which corresponds, of course, to the stance of the, the, the resistance. And so the absurd here, uh, the, 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 in the rebel, the absurd shifts into revolt. And the notion is it's sort of a modification of the, of, of the absurd. It's the fact that he speaks of, the, of revolt as the moment when things can't go on the way they did in, in the face of oppression. 
Um, it's the moment where you rise up in anger, um, but it has to be limited in time. It cannot be part of an ideology or a system. Um, so it's an injection of moral in the absurd, but there are all sorts of limitations. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting text because it really explains what revolt should not be. And revolt should not be um, a theoretical framework. It should not be a plan or a project for the future or a societal plan even. So, but, and what he's targeting here is, of course, communism. Um, revolt should not pertain to non-European people, uh, people who are, as he, he, who are too involved in the sacred, and this is Camus speaking, uh, really uh, uh, can't have access to revolt. And in a sense, it's a, he sees it as a stage of development. Um, he also thinks that countries in which social inequalities are too extreme, also revolt uh, should not uh, or could not take place. So it's a, it's a very sort of um, strange uh, perspective in a sense. That I think it, it's a modification of absurd, but it's also um, a way to criticize communism, uh, to criticize anti-colonialism ultimately, because he doesn't want revolt to be part of, to, to, to take place outside the metropole. When that book came out, um, it was meant with sort of dismay from the left, the communist left, but also the, 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 the non-communist left um, and, and, and because it was sort of a moralistic perspective. It was, and, this, and this is the political world that he's living in. This is the political world yeah. he's living in. And, you know, he was considered, uh, I mean, he wrote for a communist paper shortly for Les Lettres Françaises, shortly after the liberation. Um, he, the, the combat after the liberation had a pretty revolutionary tone. It was from resistance to revolution. I think he wrote that editorial. So there was this sense that, you know, and there was the immense prestige, of course, of, of the USSR. I mean, who would defeat the Nazis on the ground? Stalin and the USSR, and they lost 10 million soldiers. And so all of a sudden to equate Nazism with communism, as Camus did in The Rebel, that was pretty heavy stuff at the time. Uh, and all of a sudden the right wing appreciated Camus much more than the left wing in terms of, you know, in terms of the newspapers that, that, that reviewed the, the rebel. And um, in, in, I'm sorry, in, in 1950, after 1951, the right starts to appreciate Camus more than the left? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah. And the Figaro, uh, um, uh, the right liked Camus because what he's proposing is uh, this notion of revolt against oppression but that doesn't, it doesn't speak to actual structural economical change. Um, and, and so, you know, you have the spirit of revolt, you have the re rebellion, but you don't actually have any programmatic, political, historical inscription uh, into an overall narrative. Uh, and, and that's, again, that's because I think that Camus is very concerned um, that of the linkage between the Russian Revolution and anti-colonial movements. I mean, that is his great fear. That and then later on Nasser in Egypt, he thought it, they were behind the FLN and so on and so forth. So Camus wants to, he, he doesn't like the Hegelian notion of history. He doesn't even, you know, he doesn't like this notion of progress because that would mean ultimately the liberation of colonized people. So he's trying to craft um, uh, an idea of revolution, but, but without the program. So just this temporary burst 
of moral outrage. And that's it. Now, well, well, that's, you know, that's really, really sort of controversial for, for anyone who, who wants to look at things systematically and who wants to look at things from a, from a social uh, anti-colonial perspective. So when he writes The Rebel, that's, that's going to be the break with Les Temps Modernes, with Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, with the Communist Party. It was always a, already a break, um, but this will really sort of finalize it. And he lost uh, with, with the break with Sartre. I mean, at the time, you know, he lost an immense amount of credibility on the left, uh, on the, the, the communist left, but also the social democratic left uh, to a certain extent, not completely. And he was, you know, at the same time, when Camus was writing this, he thought he was being an anarchist. You know, that sort of, but because ultimately there is that sense of, of, of rebellion, of fight against oppression. But if you're looking for, you know, a prog- program in terms of a economical analysis of, of capitalism, you got to go to Marx and capital. Um, so he thought he was being an anarchist, but he was really being a libertarian. I think so. To, to, but it's interesting because he's a libertarian. At the same time, this is someone who is a product of the French state and the French education. Mm-hmm. So, so he's not your typical libertarian, clearly. Um, so he's, he, but, but this, is, this is perhaps the most important point here, is that Camus is, is an extremely complex character torn between, pulled between his identity as a pied noir, as a settler, but then his identity as a working class person. Um, and, and he can't sort of tie it all together. He's, he's just absolutely torn apart. So he covers it up in The Stranger, tries to cover it up in, in The Plague, less successfully, I would argue. And in his latest, latest his last unpub, uh, posthumously published novel, it explodes. You know, he's forced by historical events to face this. Yeah, well, let's, let's, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a second because I've got some questions about the first man. But um, so uh, you, you mentioned that the the review of um, of the rebel, uh, not not by Sartre, but is it actually by is it by Johnson? It's by Johnson. Yes, the first who, one. Yes, who will go on to play a very important role as one of the suitcase carriers in the Algerian War, uh, moving money and 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 I believe weapons as well down to. Uh, the FLN, um, but uh, this leads to this uh, this break, and so you have a whole chapter on the the friendship and then the schism between uh, Camus and Jean Paul Sartre, and you offer an excellent and concise contrast between um, the stranger and Sartre's uh, nausea. Um, can you tell us a bit about their relationship? You talk about them being intertwined, um, even even once they break, and um, how are the two alike, and how are they different? Um, and what was the power differential between them? Because I think that's very important. Yeah. Well, you know, when they, they, they first meet, I was going to say virtually, but they, they first meet. And in a Zoom meeting, right? <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, 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 you know, Camus writes a couple of reviews uh, of Sartre's short story collection, Le Mur and of Nausea in the 30s, you know, just. And he, he, Camus was, this is when he was starting his journalism career, he was writing a, a number of reviews. He liked a lot of, of what he wrote about. He didn't really like Nausea and, um, and Le Mur and the short stories there. It's very interesting because, you know, reading the literature on Camus, you'd think he, they did. But Camus was very critical of Sartre's intellectualism. And Sartre's, um, he liked his novels, the parts that were novelistic, as it were, but didn't like 
uh, the parts w- which which dealt with ideas in a too too much in in, in, a, in a fashion that was too pronounced for Camus' tastes. And he ends his his reviews by saying, you know, uh, I look forward to your new novels, um, but you know, hopefully not that they won't be too professorial in tone. Mm-hmm. And so here you have social class, you have yeah. cultural, you have cultural capital. Um, you immediately have those differences between between the upbringing and the social class of the two writers. And when Sartre writes the review of the myth of Sisyphus and the Stranger, he calls it the explanation of the stranger. And he proceeds to explain the absurd uh, and explain, you know, everything about and classify Camus, everything about these books and classify Camus in, you know, in the literary genres in uh, French literature. And at the end, and it also sort of mocks Camus for misquoting or not quoting properly, or maybe not having read the philosophers he quotes. And at the end, you know, Camus, his reaction, private reaction to, to his mentor is to say, well, you know, what an acidic tone, but at the same time, he understands, you know, some of my, my works better than I do. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. that tells you something about the complex that Camus had towards Sartre. So then, they, you know, they meet in 42, I think it's June 42, the opening of one of South's plays. Uh, you know, they hit it off. But I think that this is, you know, there's one of the, the big Sartrean theory uh, in, in being in nothingness is that you and I, us individuals, we can't relate to one another. It, it's not possible for one human being to really relate to one another except against a third party. I think that the example is these, these two sort of poor passengers in a and an ocean liner, and they're in the third class, you know, steerage, and they see this rich woman in the first class looks down on them, and they're bickering amongst themselves, and then suddenly they see her disdainful look, and they unite, they're together. Yeah. <laughs> That's the moment you unite. Well, I think something similar is going on between Camus and Sartre when they meet in 1942 in occupied Paris. Well, you know, there's the, the German occupation, and that's... I mean, this is June of 42. This is, this is the month of Valdiv. Yeah, the roundup of of, of the, the Jews in Paris. I mean, this is a high point of repression. It's a high point of repression. And this means that, you know, a- anyone who's not part of that, who's not an overt collaborator, is sort of solidified in that group uh, of, of either resistors, passive or active, but people who are, who are unhappy about the situation. Uh, once that leaves, once that, that goes away, I think that, then the differences between Sartre and Camus, you know, come to the fore progressively. I mean, really, really quickly after the liberation, um, a year or two afterwards, you know, Camus' anti-communism, Sartre's anti-colonialism. I mean, he's one of the first writers against the, the, the war in Indochina, as, as you know. And that really starts, you know, they get to, to along um, personally, they're friends. I think, you know, they, they, they like one another for different reasons. Um, but but politically, they have many, many breaks. I think one of them took place in 47 or 48 uh, with Merleau-Ponty, who was then very, very pro-USSR, and who basically said to Camus, you know, you have to choose between the Soviet Union and the United States of America, and you can't be in between. Camus hated this notion of being historic, inscribed in history. And so they, you know, they, Camus walked away. They had this big row. Sartre really was on the side of Merleau-Ponty here. Um, and and that, that break, you know, it, it becomes inevitable when he has to review, when Janson reviews the, the rebel. No. 
because the rebel is really um, uh, an, another attempt to escape from the Cold War in a way, or it, not necessarily escaping from it because he, he eventually, he objectively takes a side, right? Um, but he doesn't want to, uh, he, he's trying to, to move away and to, to sort of exclude himself from this sort of, you know, are you on the, the, the USSR side or the USA side? You know, Camus always trying to, to jump from one group to another. And, and you, you can, you look at his itinerary, you know, one day he's writing a preface for a Walt Disney publication. Another one, he's writing a preface or uh, doing an interview for a, an anarchist federation newspaper. Um, that, that, that's, that, but Camus does it on purpose. You know, this is something he is systematically doing. He's going to, you know, work with people from the left, from the right, just to, to make a point. And of course, this means that later on, he will be claimed by everyone. You know, mm-hmm. because he worked with everyone. Fascinating. Um, so in regards to the Algerian war for, um, for independence, um, in this uh, section, you talk about Camus in agony. Um, how did he view the war, um, the FLN? You know, what, what did the war force upon him? And, and he talk about how he, he tries to come up with a solution. Uh, what, what was his vision for a future, um, a future Algeria? So, you know, the, we sort of retrospectively date the beginning of the war, like in November 54. When that happened at the time, um, actually, you know, a friend of mine tells me that, you know, he was in Paris at the time. Well, it, it, it didn't really, it was, it was another day. Um, no one really knew that this, these attacks and, on these police stations w- meant anything. And certainly Camus didn't. So he didn't really react to, to anything. Uh, I think he was in, 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 you know, in Rome or doing some conferences and so on and so forth. And he was slower than most. I mean, he, again, he didn't want to, to, to deal with that colonial reality. He didn't want to deal with it in his fiction. And he certainly didn't want to, to, to speak to it directly. He wanted to be the voice of, of reason, as it were. Um, and how did he react? To it? Well, first with silence. You know, he did not want to participate, discuss it. Uh, again, it's, it's a form of denial, you know, sort of active denial here. Uh, eventually, he does have to, to speak to it. So he does a number of things. One of them is he republished his articles um, the ones that we talked about, uh, his reportage in Kabilia. Um, Kabilia. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a series of articles. So he, he, uh, he, he publishes most of them, but you know, leaves out the ones that are just so incredibly paternalistic, they wouldn't fit. Uh, so, so he does a sort of a best of, but censored. He does that. And it's sort of also to show his bona fides. He's trying to say, look, you know, I'm for a solution. And he's certainly for a concerted solution. Uh, he eventually... He, he is in favor of a civil truce and he writes up uh, or co-writes a civil truce. He goes to Algeria, I think that's 56, and he goes to Algeria to give a speech um, in favor of a civil truce. And that's sort of equating, uh, trying to equate, which is something that the French, um, uh, the French state and even in French documentaries uh, do all the time, to equate what they call uh, Algerian terrorism, the terrorism of the FLN, and the violence against civilians um, of the French state. So 
you know, during the, 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 the war, the Battle of Algiers, the French police starts when they realize they're having trouble actually um, winning the war by legitimate means, as it were. Uh, they, they practice torture, but they also put bombs in the Kasbah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and as a response to that, the FLN then puts bombs in cafes, in the milk bar. That's the chronology. It's crucial to, 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 to know about this chronology. Now, Camus doesn't, you know, does away with that chronology, equates the two, the violence, the revolutionary violence in the, or the colonial violence in the revolutionary counterviolence. There was a documentary that came out, I think a couple months ago, on Arte, which is a French documentary uh, TV station, on Camus. And the way they show the clips about terrorism, they show the milk bar bombs first, and then the bombs in the Kasbah second. They use a clip from the movie, The Battle of Algiers. But they flip the narrative. But they flip the narrative. Yeah, they flip the narrative. And Camus flipped the narrative, and people who write about Camus as an Algerian flip the narrative. And when they write about his... his, um, his trêve civile, his call for civil truce, without specifying the historical context, they flipped the narrative too. We're having a lot of revisionism that goes on through Camus to this day, which is part of his popularity. So anyways, to get back to his actual speech, what's interesting is that at that time, the, the settlers, the Pienois, uh, the vast majority of them, not all, but the vast majority of them uh, have no, no time for Camus' compromises. And the mayor of Alger refuses to, to allow him to give a speech in you know, a, municipal, um, um, a municipal stadium or, or just a municipal space. And what's interesting is that the people who organize the, uh, his speech are in fact members of the FLN. And they're trying, but Camus doesn't, unbeknownst to Camus, and they, they're sort of trying to claim him and recuperate him. You know, they, 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 they think they'll, they'll make him, you know, They'll turn him. They'll flip him around. Did they like his message? What was the FLN's take on it? I mean, well, I think the FLN's take on it was that Camus pretty malleable, uh, a, a useful fool, a useful fool. Um, you know, if if he is going to stick with the with the discourse of humanism when France was systematically torturing people, you know, how long could you could you keep equating you know France's massacre of the Algerians on an industrial scale? With you know the the you know the very sort of poor and uh, ragtag response from the FLN. I mean, they had people, but they didn't really have the means. So so I think that you know well, who knows? You know that's one of the counterfactuals. I mean, maybe we could write a counterfactual with with Camus as a as a suddenly a revolutionary. Although I think this is part of also the desire to claim Camus. When he and also the, the fact is when he did this claim, you know, this this appeal for civil truce was unwinnable. That was going to put egg on the face of the French state, no matter what. So mm-hmm. they that because they want Camus to say this to ask for humanism with a colonialism with a colo- with humanism colonialism with a human face, because that's in fact impossible. So they're happy for him to claim that. And outside of uh, the the auditorium where he gives his speech. There are settlers crying deaf to Camus. Yeah. It's also good PR. Yeah. So this is, this is almost the, the flip of uh, De Gaulle's famous uh, Je vous ai compris speech where, you know, he gives this vague statement and everybody hears what they want to hear. And that buys a little time until everyone turns on him. But uh, 
this is just an outright disaster for Camus. It is. Now, it's interesting you mentioned De Gaulle because, because De Gaulle's, that's De Gaulle's specialty, right? He did a Je vous ai compris speech way before to a very different audience in 1944 in Brazzaville, in Congo. Right, right. Where he goes to the, to the colonized leaders and say, Je vous ai compris, come join me in the resistance and I'll, I'll, I'll um, do whatever I can to give you independence. And then he goes to the settlers 20 years later and says the, or 10 years later, 12 years later, to say the opposite. So he was... Um, he was definitely um, uh, uh, a clever uh, politician there, who who knew sort of how to how to capture, um, or he tried at least, or may- maybe not. Maybe you can look at it as him being on the wrong side of history. But when Camus comes back after this disaster, he vows to to stop talking and to be silent. Um, but he also um, he stops speaking publicly on the issue, but it also clarifies things in the sense that. Compromise is impossible. Huh. He has to take sides. And he takes sides. And he writes in his personal diary, I, a writer is about writing his works and defending his people. And who are his, peop- his people? The Pienois. Right. And then, and then this feeds right into the, the famous moment at the, um, the press conference in, when he wins the Nobel Prize. And he's challenged by the Algerian student. Um, and can you speak to that? Well, yes. Well, that, so then, you know, there's this, and this, so there's this convoluted argument about, um, so the, the Algerian student says, you know, takes him to task. And Camus says, the FLN is bombing streets, bombing tramways. My mother takes a tramway. If this is your justice, you know, I'd prefer the safety of my mother to your justice. So what's very interesting is that, in, in a sense, this is an admission of sorts, that the presence of his mother is premised on injustice. He is clearly saying the colonial system is unjust. Um, and and when, when that, you know, so there are controversies about the exact quote, but the final point is that he chooses uh, his mother, he chooses essentialism, he chooses his roots over you know, human justice. He's not capable of, of, he's chosen finally symbolically. He's chosen his provenance. He's chosen, you know, the, the, the genetic makeup over, you know, a community of human beings fighting for freedom. It's, it's, it's a damning event uh, at, at, at that stage. It's, it's, you know, that sort of breaks it all down. And for the longest time, I mean, that was, that was considered, you know, an immense loss of credibility on his part. Right. And so then he, he dies this, uh, some have called it an absurd death in the car accident in, in 1960. And in the wreckage, um, they, you know, it's almost cinematic this moment where they, they find a manuscript for what would have been his, the next novel, uh, the first man. Um, but it's, they decide not to publish it in, in 1960 and it's not published until what the mid 1990s. Um, what was in the novel, the novel and why was it suppressed? Well, you know, there's so many things about this this novel, which is again, so it's a it's incomplete. Um, in the novel, first it's called the first man, who uh, sometimes his name is Adam, although um, that that only happens on occasion. But this is and he's a settler, of course, and he's a stand-in for Camus. And it, uh, it's set in Algeria. And it's set in Algeria. This is uh, a, you know, sort of Camus or stand-in for Camus who goes to visit 
Algeria during the, the Algerian War of Independence and discusses uh, certain events with settlers. And the framework is, is very, very, um, it's, it's fairly repetitive. And there are discussions between this Camus stand-in and all these sort of old-timey settlers who have these conversations about their plight and about how they're misunderstood. Um, and so, so, so just first, the very notion that Adam, the first man, is a settler is problematic. And it's not going to really fly in, in, you know, coming out where even in January 1960, when Camus died, the writing was on the wall. Algeria was going to become independent. They dragged their feet till 62. Uh, a book with, with the passages uh, that, are, that are featured in, in The First Man is unpublishable. So, for example, uh, one of the characters who is sort of lionized uh, talks about uh, how his colleagues during the Rift War in Morocco were tortured and massacred by the Moroccan rebels. And what a race, what people, what a race. And there was these passages which legitimize in, in the, the xenophobia of the settlers. There are also paternalistic passages where a young Arab is saved by the Pianois crowd, by do-gooders, settlers, and so on. I mean, the whole book is, is really difficult to read um, because it's Camus coming out. This is, this is, the mask is off. This is a defense of the settlers. They are called indigenous people of Algeria. In the book. I mean, you think about it, that's pretty extraordinary. What's even more extraordinary so this explains why it's not published. Yeah. I mean, you talk about dehumanizing the colonized. Yeah, the, the colonized is, is, is dehumanized. It's not, doesn't even have, you know, its status as an indigenous people is what was left. Yeah. That even, uh, they're trying to co-opt that. And so when you look at, you know, the, the, the political cultural landscape in France in 62, France loses Algeria. It's not in the papers anymore. They don't want to talk about it. This is, it, it is, it is the great repression, uh, the great denial. It's not in school books, even today in France. They, they've done polls. You know, most French kids don't even know that, that there was an Algerian War of Liberation. They certainly can tell you the dates. Uh, I was, I was yeah. recently in Paris with an uh, extended French family, and I, we were near the Eiffel Tower, and I wanted to see the memorial for the Algerian War on the banks of the Seine. And they said, there's no memorial for the Algerian War. I said, yes, there is. They, no, there's not. And well, yeah. There is. I've seen it before, and and I eventually found it. It's those three columns with the LED lights flashing, uh, and they were stunned. I mean, these these are these are true Parisians, and they had no idea that such a memorial existed. Yeah, yeah. No, it's in it, so today. I mean, in France, most people don't know what happened in Sétif and Guilma. People don't know what happened in October '61 in the streets of Paris, where Algerians were killed by you know by the dozens, by the French police. and then Drowned by bullets. What's that? They were drowned by bullets, as the police report said. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, so, in, but in 62, there was no, or even in 60, the, the mood of the country was, was such that uh, there was a great, you know, part of the population who was tired of the war. And they, they I don't think that uh, there would have been a good, um, reception of Camus' work at that stage. So I think it was a it was a political, but it was also a business decision for also for Camus' legacy. They all agreed. Um, the editor of his complete works at the time with the Pleiad 
or the, the two volumes, his wife, they said, well, let's not publish this. You know, these are people who really think about his legacy. And when it comes out in 1996, I think it's 96, it, it may have been a year before or after, they do a limited run in, a, you know, not a hardcover, just not paperback either, but, a, you know, 5,000 copies. They expect there to be, you know, a critical perspective, but it's a huge hit. It's a huge hit because France is eager for a retelling um, of its colonial past, yeah. which, you know, Camus, of course, had a very, very specific biased perspective when it came to what was going on and who were the victims of the Algerian War of Liberation. I mean, in that book, the victim are the French settlers, the French wine growers, and, and so on and so forth. And the enemies were the French Parisian intellectuals. And so you have this sort of, in, you know, cameos of Sartre, even though he's not named, are, are there and, and, and feature. Uh, so, so no, it's, it's, this is where Camus and his popularity today is immensely telling. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. You, you wrap up the book um, with a discussion of the afterlife of Camus and, um, you know, include, you know, my favorite detail about George W. Bush reading uh, The Stranger over the summer and uh, you reference, got a reference to Cure and the, their, when their first big hits, Killing an Arab. But what, what is Camus, uh, Camus' afterlife? Um, and what phases does his work and reputation go through and who, who's adopted him and, and who do you think misread him or has uh, misappropriated him? Well, I think that, you know, a, a lot of this, the, the afterlife of Camus is very much tied to the polit political, historical, cultural landscape in France. And, you know, there's, Camus dies in 1960, the Algerian liberation movement wins, and there's the Algerian independence in 62. In 1968, we have the greatest strike in French history, the work, greatest worker strike, which is also, you know, you know, provoked with students and so on and so forth. But it's not a successful revolution, although the Gaulle leaves for a couple of days and so on. But what happens, one of the direct consequences of 68 is that there is a massive um, counter-revolution, counter-cultural counter-revolution. And all sorts of intellectuals who were in the Communist Party realize the Communist Party is against the revolution or is not going to help it happen. Uh, they joined, some of them joined Maoist uh, groups that fail and peter out in the early 70s. And so there's a, a move to the right of the intellectual elites. And they need a vehicle for this. And in 1977, um, an acquaintance or a friend, depending on who tells the story of Camus, Jean Daniel, who directs a, a, a newspaper called, or a magazine called Le Nouvel Observateur, writes an article saying, in 1977, it's time to return to Camus. And, you know, all of a sudden, Camus' attacks on communism fit with the mood of the time, because this is a moment where all sorts of elites who thought they were going to ride on this upcoming revolution in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, realize that's not going to happen. And so they turn their coat, as it were, um, and they switch from Sartre to Camus. Um, and I think that's one of the big moments where the Camus popularity grows. And then it grows even more in 89 and um, 91 with the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, this is the moment where a lot of those uh, intellectual elites will, will say, Camus was right, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and then with the publication of The First Man, uh, same thing. 
I think that um, possibly also the Algerian Civil War in the in you know early 90s after the canceled election helps too you know and and so this is another wave so Camus is this you know the narrative of Camus as an anti-colonial figure who is both anti-colonial in a misreading of his articles on Kabylia and colonial because he's a settler is this sort of imagined resolution of France's you know Enlightenment ideals and imperial actions. And he is sort of colonialism with a human face. <laughs> and the French political landscape, everyone in the French political landscape can't get enough of him. And I'm talking about um, in the 90, 1990s and the 2000s and the teens, you know, the, the, the Communist Party newspaper, L'Humanité, will quote Camus. The National Front, Marine Le Pen quotes Camus in the editorial in the New York Times. Uh, the anarchists do, the right wing, the left wing. Everyone, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy wants to put Camus in the pantheon. Um, he's used by, and he's claimed by everyone um, as a sort of stand-in for moral integrity uh, for, and, and also for erudition, uh, er, erudition and, and, and intelligence and so on and so forth. So he's, you know, today, I mean, you go to the bookstore and you have, you know, 20, 30 books on Camus. And this is, this is in France, of course. And this is true to an extent uh, in England, in the U.S. You know, this, this, and very much so also during the Cold War in Germany, where there were, I think no country had more plays represented by Camus or TV shows um, you know, Camus plays being represented uh, because he was the anti-communist writer by excellence. Mm. Yeah. So let me ask you, you have to choose Team Camus or Team Sartre? <laughs> well, I don't think it's a team. And I think ultimately, you know, they are, you've, you've got to look at them together. Yeah. Because the reason Camus is appreciated is in part because of his break with Sartre. So Camus, adoring Camus, celebrating Camus is a way to easily be able to set aside, set aside what Sartre did, his stance against colonialism, his stance against neocolonialism. And so with that break, you're, you're, you're able to you know, promote one over the other. You, you, we in fact should avoid doing that, right? Um, and in, in many ways, you know, Kebu is a great example of the contradictions of colonialism um, and, and how this actually broke him uh, completely. And this is, this is the, the contradictions of, of our times. We are here today in a world where we, the, 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 the big struggle apparently is enlightened imperialism versus a, a medieval resistance, right? And that's the struggle that Camus was proved, you know, unable to, to resolve. And what we have in between there, lost in the mix, is a profoundly radical, uh, you know, revolutionary anti-colonial perspective, which is Sartre, which has been washed away. The way that also, you know, communist parties in Iraq and the Philippines have been, and in Indonesia, have been destroyed. So, so the, the, a real tricontinental, a, a real opposition based on, on revolutionary ideas has been set aside. And, and that, I think, is, is very much part of the reason why people want us so much to forget about Sartre and, you know, 
Oof. push him aside and maybe read his limo, his autobiography. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Well, hey, you've been really generous with your time and I, I could, I could go on forever with you, but um, just two more questions before we let you go. Um, first, can you suggest two books for the audience to read? I'm going to ask to suggest three if possible. Okay. <laughs> so there is a, a novel by Joseph Andras called De Nos Frères Blessés. And this is about one of those Piennois who fought on the side of the FLN and who was sentenced to death by the French state. And there is no, 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 let's say so our wounded brother. Yeah, but it's it in English, it's called Tomorrow They They Won't Dare Murder Us. Tomorrow They Won't Dare Murder Us by Joseph Andras, A-N-D-R-A-S. Mm-hmm. This is someone who won um, a major uh, prize, the Prix Goncourt du Premier Romancier. He refused the prize. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to play the literary game. And this is, you know, a fundamental book because this is the story of a French settler fighting against the settler colonialism authorities, uh, and he paid the price with his life. There is um, the new book by Frederick Jameson, The Benjamin Files, which is really an electrifying book on Benjamin with some incredible interpretations of Baudelaire and his poems and recontextualizing them. Uh, Really good stuff there. I've been reading books on John Brown, um, which I think in a way he's sort of an anti-Camus because John Brown, you know, sort of- The abolitionist? Yeah, the abolitionist. Yeah, okay. so he, he, he sparks the civil war. Yeah. He, but at the same time, this is someone who, who in, in, in a way you could say he's a true revolutionary hero, one of the few that this country has. And yet he has been demonized by the establishment, by Hollywood, and so there's there's a sort of reverse, there's sort of a parallel here. So I thought Midnight Rising by Tony Horwitz was interesting. There are other ones. Uh, and it's nice to see Eric Foner, I think, might have written on, on him, to, to see a, a different narrative finally emerging on John Brown. And there's that um, Showtime series. A Showtime uh, series. Which I, is a, a f- mini flights of fancy. Right. But, and also the fact that, you know, the 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 he's sort of portrayed as, as a fanatic, uh, you know, it, it's... Yeah, so I don't know. It's, it's, it, I have mixed feelings about that one, but at least it's part of that movement of talking about John Brown. I think we need to talk more about John Brown. Um, what else have I been reading? The, the Simone de Beauvoir's autobiographies. You know, she tells it like it is. You want to know about that, what, what's going on in post-World War II France, you know, with South, with Camus, but also with Algeria, mm-hmm. with rights movements. I mean, read Simone de Beauvoir. That's just the way to do it. Okay, well, that's a solid reading list for everyone. Good end of the year presence. And now, finally, what are you working on now, and what can we hope to see from you next? Well, right now, I'm working on Oublier Camus, which is another book on Camus, really focusing on the ideolo- ideological contradictions of the man, but also, you know, what we talked about the the desire to to claim him. Why? Um, and I also want to specifically talk about another break and another relationship that people don't talk about, which is Camus and Simone de Beauvoir, uh, and where maybe that is the real opposition, um, but, you know, the real break um, that explains the, you know, the opposition with Sartre and so on and so forth. So that's, that's what I'm doing right now. Great. Well, hey, Oliver Gloke, thank you so much for your time. Um, really appreciate it. Great conversation. 
Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. Yeah. So this has been a conversation with Oliver Gloke about his Albert Camus, a very short introduction at with Oxford University Press in 2020. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.